Welcome to Mind Tricks Radio, where we'll explore contemporary topics in psychology through interviewing creative and innovative thinkers in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan. Thanks for tuning in. We're here today with Dr. Kyla Wallstrom, a senior research fellow at the University of Minnesota. Her research work over the past 25 years has examined school and district leadership and the outcomes that result from educational policy initiatives. She has been researching later high school start times for the past 23 years, including her multi-year national study for the CDC. The results of that research were used by the American Academy of Pediatrics to inform their national policy statement in 2014 about the need for later high school starting times across the U.S. Before becoming a researcher, she was a classroom teacher, a school principal, and a district administrator for 19 years. Kyla, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. This is a really fun thing for us to be talking about. Me too, and I'm so excited to have you here. I was exposed to some of the research and work you've done by reading some of your articles and was just really, really impressed with this important topic that you've been working on in your career for many years. And I just felt like I had to have you on the show here to talk about this because it's the kind of thing that just everybody needs to know about. It's so important. Mm -hmm. Thank you. You know, before we get started in this topic about teens and sleep, I wanted to just get to know you a little bit better to ask you a bit more about your background uh, personally and how you got drawn initially into this field of research and interest. So maybe you could talk a little bit about yourself and your background. Well, it's interesting in that um, my first 19 plus almost 20 years of my work life was spent first as a classroom teacher, then a special education teacher, an elementary school principal, and finally a district office director of special education. And so my background is well, well grounded in the real world of work. I know how teachers think and how principals react to decisions and how district school boards make decisions or they don't make decisions. And that hasn't changed even after all these years. Kids are kids, teachers are teachers. And the dynamics among those groups of people are pretty similar over the years. So when I got my doctorate, I then started working at the University of Minnesota as a researcher and found that the whole notion of bringing research information into the schools was really an important role that I could play because I knew schools so well. And so as a consequence, I have been was working at that time at the Center for Applied Research and Educational Improvement, and I stayed there for 26 years became the director ultimately, and really found that this has been a passion of mine because it's about the kids. This whole topic about teens and sleep is about the children, and we have to keep that at the absolute forefront of our thinking. Absolutely. And how did you come across this topic about teens and sleep? Well, you know, it's very interesting how being open to new ideas and serendipity. When I was working at the research center at the University of Minnesota, because I had connections for all my years in the schools, I got a call from a school superintendent that is the Edina, Minnesota school superintendent, whose school board had just decided to make the decision to change to a later start time. It turns out that the Minnesota Medical Association had sent a letter to all area superintendents because there was the new re emerging research from Mary Carskadden and others at Brown University that, in fact, teens have a different sleep-wake cycle than adults. Mm. And 
Dr. Karskadden happened on this totally by accident because teens are coming into her lab with asthma and how much asthma affects teen sleep and quality. And when they started studying the teen sleep patterns in the asthmatics, they found, oh, they had a wholly different sleep pattern in terms of wake time, sleep time than the adults that they've been seeing. And so she started publishing on this. And so then this got to be shared at a medical meeting. And it was then transferred to the Edina School District School Board of Interest. And they decided to push back their starting time from 7.20 to 8.30. And I was called then by the superintendent at that time. They'd already made the decision to investigate the outcomes. So, and I have to tell you, Aaron, I was totally skeptical Mm. when I got the call. Mm-hmm. I thought this just sounds like, <laughs> come on, really? That sleep is affecting kids doing well in school? I, I mean, not that didn't seem to be make sense, but later starting time didn't seem to make any sense to me at all. So I came in as a skeptic, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I think that most people, when they think about teens, they probably think, yeah, teens just don't get enough sleep. That's the problem. They just need to get to sleep earlier. That would mm-hmm. probably be what most people's first conclusion would be. True. Either that or they're lazy and that they don't go to bed because they're busy socializing and and especially getting up um, and how difficult any parent who's raised a child and has to struggle with getting that child out of bed in the morning, especially at say 6 or 6.30 for a school start at 7.15, has experienced this more than likely. This is something that um, I went into totally without any bias at all. And the first year of the data collection I did in Edina Schools was transformative Mm. to a person people would grab me in the hall and saying are you the person that's investigating this this later start stuff i need to talk to you because my class is different my first hour classes are totally different they're better the school nurse grabbed me and said i need to talk to you because we have fewer kids self-referring for stomach aches headaches even the counselor said the kids are not self-referring for peer relationship problems So it was to a person. And then the principal, when I interviewed the principal, he said, wow, we have a different school here because Mm -hmm. there is the tension is less in the cafeteria. There are less happenings um, with incidents in the hallways during passing time. And overall, it was just a remarkable change in their school, notable in the first month of school. Amazing. Amazing. And so this was in Edina, and that's a school district uh, in Minneapolis? Correct. It's a, it's a, um, a wealthy, and, it, and I'll get to in a minute why that's an important variable. It's a wealthy suburb um, outside of Minneapolis, yes. Okay. And what year was this that you were doing that initial investigation of the data? 1996. Wow. So we're talking 24 years ago. Yeah. We'll get more into that as we go, because there's been a whole lot of data that's been collected since then and a mm-hmm. number of important studies. Um, and I want to get a little bit into the some of the technical aspects of the teen brain, the medical stuff, too, that might explain some of this, too. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else that you wanted to say about those early adults? Well, I wanted to add, too, yeah. that interestingly, the Minneapolis public schools, which couldn't be, and the reason that the demographic difference between Minneapolis and Edina, Minneapolis is a clearly an urban district with students that have normal the challenges that are present in urban settings. The school district is 67% students of color. It's now increased even now since then. 82% of the students run free and reduced lunch. So it was a clearly different demographic. But when Minneapolis called me and said, we want to, to change our start time, will you investigate this? And they wanted to look, me to look at it for five years. 
So in 1997, Minneapolis made the change. I came in, did some baseline data collection, and then followed these kids and their data for five years. And it was remarkable because, as you would expect, if this sleep change in teens, and we'll get to that in a minute, is biological, then you wouldn't see any difference between Edina wealthy kids and Minneapolis not wealthy kids right. if it's just a matter of biology. And we thought no difference wow. in their sleep patterns. There are certainly other differences that I'll get into in a bit, but there was just no difference because this is a matter of biology and not a matter of economics. So can we talk a little bit about the teen brain and just give us a little bit of a medical, psychobiological education about how and why the teen brain might be different than the brains of people of other ages? What I think was pretty remarkable when Dr. Karskadden did the investigations originally, so the teen brain has been found to be different than preteens, children and adults, in that during puberty, the secretion of melatonin, which is the trigger for people to feel sleepy. In teens, the secretion doesn't begin until about 10.30 or 10.45. So teens can be very tired, but they're not sleepy and they're not able to fall asleep until the melatonin secretion begins. Mm -hmm. Consequently, and also the melatonin secretion continues until eight in the morning. So that is about nine hours and 15 minutes of time that the brain is being bathed with melatonin and therefore the brain is in a sleep mode. So what's different then about the teen brain is those of us as adults and also pre-teenagers before puberty, our sleep-wake cycle is malleable. That's why adults can do shift work and that's why little children can go, to, you can put them down for bed at 6 or 6.30 or 8 or 8.30 and they'll fall asleep because their brains are malleable and they can fall asleep whenever. As a result, with the teen brain difference, when they're still in a sleep mode until eight in the morning, if their classes are starting at seven, 7.30 and they're getting up at six or 6.30, the brain is just screaming saying, I wanna stay asleep, I need mm. to stay asleep. Mm -hmm. And it's really an important feature of our physical and mental health that we get adequate sleep. So mm -hmm. the fact that teens are not able to really fall asleep until 11, and I've interviewed hundreds and hundreds of kids who will say, yeah, I go to bed and I just lay and stare at the ceiling until about 10, 30 mm -hmm. or 11. And then I fall asleep. And then I talk to parents and they say, oh, I'm dragging the kids out of bed, you know, and, and they're just, they don't want to get up. The kids and the kids aren't able to wake up. They sleep on the bus. They sleep more than 20% of all students sleep in their first hour class. Yeah. And Kyla, that's my clinical experience too, I've got to say. I mean, parents okay. all say that, and mm -hmm. the, teen, the teens say that too. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing is, I have a 12-year-old son now, so I take him to school every day, and kind of like you said, he can pretty much drop off and sleep when he needs to. Mm -hmm. But I notice when I take him to school, all the teens are asleep in the passenger seat while their parents are driving them to school. <laughs> yes. And it's like, yes. oh my gosh, you, <laughs> it's too early for you. You're still yeah. sleepy. Right. I'm very aware <laughs> of that after reading your research. <laughs> And just wait, Aaron, because you're going to experience this extreme sleep phase shift, it's called. Mm -hmm. The sleep phase shift will happen probably in the next year or two, and you're going to really see a difference in your child that you thought would be an early riser, and they're not. They have 95% mm -hmm. of all humans in the world, teenage humans, have this experience of the sleep phase shift. So mm -hmm. it's not due to anything in America. It's Studies have been done all over the world. Italy, Brazil, mm -hmm. Korea, China. Yep. 
So parents of just about every country could commiserate about this issue. Right, exactly, yes. Yeah. You did the Minneapolis study. That blew you away when you were collecting mm -hmm. that research. Yeah. Right. And then there's been years of studying since then. I'd like to hear, maybe you could give a summary about what the research has been in the last 15 to 20 years or so, mm -hmm. and some of those amazing statistics that are just shocking mm -hmm. that you found based on the data. Erin, it's interesting. The research work that has been done on adolescent sleep, not just school starting time at adolescent sleep, the number of articles is in the range of almost 2,000. Mm. 2,000. This has been well studied, and there are no countervailing findings. In other words, there's no dispute that the teenage brain has this phenomenon of the sleep phase shift. That is absolutely science. It's scientifically proven with lab studies and other kinds of ways of measuring things that have to do with sleep and outcomes after sleep and lack of sleep. So the database and the research base is absolutely robust about this. Mm -hmm. The thing that's very interesting, however, is that as this affects teens, it's no question that lack of sleep and eight hours seems to be the tipping point for teens to be at risk for sleep deprivation, okay? Mm -hmm. So it's eight hours, and if you do the math, if you figure going backwards, if kids can't fall asleep, say, till 11 o'clock, right? Mm -hmm. You shoot ahead eight hours, which is the absolute minimum. They should absolutely not be forced to wake up before 7 a.m. Mm -hmm. Well, any school that starts basically before eight, you got students that are needing to be waking up before seven to get on a bus, to get themselves ready to school and so on. So the fact that this eight hours is such a critical tipping point that that is what should drive decisions based on when school is starting if the teens cannot get eight hours of sleep. Mm -hmm. The lack of sleep, if you get less than eight hours, has statistically proven that it leads to greater cigarette use, drugs, alcohol, teenage pregnancy, car crashes. Mm -hmm. Those are all the negatives and major significant um, relationship to depression. Mm -hmm. The curve on depression and the number of hours of sleep as it decreases, the incidence of depression and suicide, suicide attempts or suicide ideation can jump up to almost 30% as teens wow. are getting only four or five hours of sleep a night. So this is, I mean, basically a linear correlational data Yes. on all of these measures. You see yes. an increase as there's a decrease in the number of, um, in, in terms of the hours and the times that kids are going to sleep and waking up. It's yes. just a clear cut correlation there. Correct. What about academics? Well, you know, for many years, the jury was out on that. The studies that I did in Minneapolis from 97 to 2002 showed clear trend lines that as students got more sleep, the grades improved. And also in Minneapolis, where the dropout rate at that time was 52% of all students in Minneapolis dropped out between grades 10 and 12. Wow. So the dropout rate was exceedingly bad. Hmm. With the start time change, the improvement, because they went from 715 to 840 which is a big shift. Mm -hmm. And the graduation rate or the staying in school rate and the not leaving school increased 5% every year that we looked at. So cumulatively over the four or five years, there was a 15% increase in graduation rate, just purely related to the start time. Now the grades themselves, 
one of the things that it had to do with, and this, this is an interesting phenomenon, you'd say, well, why did the start time affect the kids staying in school? Well, in high school, it has to do with seat time and being present. And so if these kids, in the, especially in the inner city, missed the bus, they had no way to get to school. Mm-hmm. Maybe their parents would be at work. They'd miss the school bus. They had no way to get to school. So they would just stay home. And so they would have all these absences, and then they didn't earn the credits for the class. Mm-hmm. You know, at some point they realized, well, I'm not on track to graduate. I might as well just cut out of this game and I'm gone. So that's kind of the mechanism by which we discovered that the graduation rate improved. It's because the kids stayed in class and attended the first hours. They didn't miss those credits for graduation. Right. So now the academic performance in the study that I did for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention from 2010 to 2014 clearly showed that there is a relationship. It's not causal, but there's a relationship between later start and improved academic performance. Mm-hmm. I was in five different school districts and eight high schools, and the school district that had the latest start, which was Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and that's actually quite a mixed, uh, it's not an affluent suburb you think it would be or a mean mm-hmm. town, but it's not because they have so many workers who work in the ski resorts and in the restaurants and so on. So it's a very racially mixed group and it's a very economically mixed population. Their grades, performance in all core subject areas, that's English, math, social studies, and science, all had statistically significant improvement after three years. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that's incredible. Yep. You had mentioned that in some cases in, in Minneapolis, the later start time helped kids just get to school and they'd miss completely if they, if they weren't waking up. Yep. I can see that a lot of these things impact each other. Kids aren't, they're not getting good sleep, they're missing school and they're drowsy, so they're getting into car crashes. They're irritable, so they get into fights mm-hmm. and they drink alcohol to calm themselves down. I could see how a lot of these factors just, they interact with each other to just sort of like a downward spiral. It is. Yeah. yeah. And in fact, the car crash data is remarkably scary, and, but mm-hmm. positive in for like Jackson Hole. The car crash rate for teenagers in that, those years that I studied them dropped 70%. Wow. 70% fewer car crashes. And, and car crashes is the leading cause of death among teenagers, mm-hmm. so car accidents. So if nothing else, this is I mean, those kids, not only do I drive off the road because they fall asleep, but they drive into us as they fall asleep. So it's pretty important that we do something that could keep them safe on the road and us, all of us safe on the road too. Absolutely. That's that's incredible data. So the car Mm -hmm. crashes. You had mentioned about drugs and alcohol. What are the findings there? Well, clearly there's a link there. And that linkage is interesting because it has to do with self-stimulation, number one. So because kids who are sleep deprived, first off, they don't use their best judgment and Mm -hmm. their choices that they make because they're sleep deprived, their executive function is a little bit compromised. Mm -hmm. So they don't use good judgment in terms of deciding whether or not to, even with peer pressure to use drugs, cigarettes, or alcohol. Mm -hmm. And then of course, alcohol and caffeine, they're perceived as stimulants. And so if they're sleepy, they'll make choices to drink or drink caffeine just to compensate for Mm -hmm. how they feel. If they feel lousy, they think that Doing something like that is going to make them help them feel better. Mm-hmm. The other thing that is important about the depression part of this 
is the people who study mental illness and mental health in labs with subjects and electrodes in the brains and all those kinds of things have found that sleep acts as a form of therapy in that every single thing that happens to us during the day, our brain records Mm -hmm. every single thing, even, and I give this example often if I'm speaking to a, a crowd. So let's say you're talking to somebody and a fire engine goes by the room and everybody hears the siren, but they block it out because they're listening to the talk. Okay. But your brain at night remembers that. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is during REM sleep, those bits of information that are totally unrelated to anything just get through there's a washing of the brain with cerebral fluid every night. Those get washed out of the body as neurotoxins. But the things that get remembered, there is a core to every memory, memory and it has an affective tone to it. And as you sleep, mm-hmm. whether you felt positive about that moment, let's say you took a math test and, and you did poorly, okay? You're going to re, remember feeling badly about getting a bad grade. So when you sleep, your bad feelings about that grade actually get pulled away. They get mm-hmm. modulated mm-hmm. and you then wake up the next morning and you don't feel so bad about it. But if you don't get enough sleep, the feeling bad about it stays hooked on to that memory. Mm-hmm. And so as, as a result, people who don't get enough sleep actually have a lot of negative affective feelings retained mm-hmm. because there hasn't been a chance to be it, have it sort of modified and removed, if you will. Sure. And that makes perfect sense. And definitely good sleep patterns and sleep hygiene is a big part of our clinical practice. Mm-hmm. We're always checking on that. sleep. Yeah. yeah. With, yeah. At, at every age, of course, that, that's not unique to teens. The important right. to have that good sleep, to be able to have the REM sleep and to process stuff that went on during the day, to have yeah. good dreaming and make sure the sleep architecture is in place. Mm-hmm. Again, with the teens not getting enough sleep and because of the start and the waking time for them, that seems to really be affecting them. And you mentioned depression, of course, uh, aff- affective problems, and that's going to be correlated with suicide, which you said higher rates of suicide were, you've noticed, or yes. suicide attempts in the, in yep. the data. Yeah. Uh, have you seen increase in anxiety disorders and other types of mental illness types of disorders? Yes. And it's a lot of it just has to do with a person's feeling of self-efficacy and Mm -hmm. the feelings of efficacy, like I can do this. I can cope with this. I can handle this are much more strong when you've been well-rested. And when you're not well-rested, I think any of us is we don't feel well-rested. We feel easily defeated. Mm -hmm. And so the notion of efficacy gets really tied into the amount of sleep you get Mm -hmm. and how resilient you are. You know, teens, by and large, they already are dealing with hormonal changes and everything else that makes them feel happy or sad about their peer relationships or their academics and so on. And um, they're so kind of volatile to begin with. And then a lack of sleep just exacerbates it. In fact, I often use this example when I talk to groups of parents saying, think about when your kids, if you have, when they were, say, like a two-year-old, a two-and-a-half-year-old toddler, and if you happen to go to the store maybe at 4.30 or 5 at the end of the day, they're tired. They don't cope mm-hmm. well when you say no when they're reaching for the candy or the gum or whatever it is that they want, mm-hmm. and they have a little outburst, a tantrum. Mm-hmm. Well, teenagers aren't going to have a tantrum like a two-year-old, but they do tantrum in their own way. Mm-hmm. And they will be give you um, a lot of feedback verbally about how what a terrible parent you are. And also they don't cope well with their 
peers who um, seem to be maybe irritating them. Mm -hmm. So this whole notion about coping behavior when you're lacking sleep is seen in almost any age level. And it certainly sees itself in teens, but teens, because they're experimentally driven. I mean, that's, that's what you do when you're a teenager is you, you kind of try out life a little bit and they make bad decisions in many cases. Yeah. And I imagine it must be really tough because here they are, they're trying to go to school and get to school and they're really struggling. They're like, I'm not able to function the way I'm expected to function right now. I can't mm -hmm. do it. Mm -hmm. It must be a feeling of uh, helplessness that they may have. Yes. And being told, pay attention, get with the program. What's your problem? Stop being so lazy. You got to do your yep. work. Yep. And they're like, I, I want to, but I, I, I can't. I'm having a hard time with this. That's right. That's yeah. right. And yeah. teens articulate that a two-year-old just screams and hollers and kicks their feet. But in a sense, it's the same kind of reaction. Tell us a little bit about what is currently going on or what has happened in recent years in terms of the school districts, mm -hmm. the schools that have had a desire to or have tried to change the start times? What's gone on with that? Have there been school districts that have been successful with it? Uh, barriers? Let's get into that conversation. Sure. Okay. Well, it's been fascinating since my area of research is school change and school, how people adapt to change and policies are made that enable learners to have better learning experiences. It's very interesting, Erin, because from like 90, as soon as 96, 97, as soon as I started publishing some of the earliest findings, the newspaper people from across the United States were at my doorstep. Mm. I mean, we're talking every single newspaper in the country from the New York Times, the Washington Post, the LA Times, the Cleveland Plain Dealer, the Dallas Morning News, and so on, Chicago Tribune, you name it, they called, they wanted to know more about this stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So there's this huge flurry of activity, even some of the morning talk shows on TV, you know, the news shows and so on. Well, that prompted a lot of school superintendents to call me mm -hmm. and say, uh, okay, we're interested in this. What can you tell me about how it's going to affect grades? Because grades is the only thing that our school board will listen to that will motivate them to make this change. <laughs> That's right? the selling point. It was the selling point. And I had to honestly say, we have some indication that there's a trend line going up for grades improving, but we don't have the actual proof yet because it's, this is too early to, mm -hmm. to know for certain. And with that, by and large, and I probably got 500, 600 calls. I'm not exaggerating. Mm. Over those first couple of years, the superintendents would say, sorry, and they hung up. You know, we oh. can't do this without the proof of the grades. So then from about 2002 until about 2008, there were some brave school districts who called, wanting to know how to go about this, parent groups who started petitions to get this going, even some high school students across the country mm -hmm. who were was maybe the student representative, say on a school board, yeah. they often now have student representatives. So I gave them as much guidance as I could saying, you know, what you could do to make this uh, discussion happen. And those were the brave districts and probably the National Sleep Foundation was keeping track of how many districts made the change. Mm -hmm. And it, by 2005, more than 500 districts in the country had made the shift, okay? Mm -hmm. So the, the National Sleep Foundation then decided to stop keeping track because the numbers are just going up. And then it kind of leveled off for a while, and then come the next wave of interest after I let my report out from the CDC, and then the American Academy of Pediatrics 
use that data from my report plus a certain lot of other research studies. And then they issued their policy statement in 2014 mm -hmm. that said all secondary schools in this country should not start earlier than 830. Mm -hmm. Well, that was a huge, big next step because then not only were the physicians saying all in one voice, this is important. But then other groups such as the American Psychological Association, the American Nurses Association, and so on, all joined in and said, this is really an important public health issue for kids. Mm -hmm. Now, all that said, if people don't understand the biology of the sleep phase shift in teenagers, they don't like the idea and they vote against it. Mm -hmm. So the number one thing that I've had to deal with and talk with groups of people is you have to have public education mm -hmm. about how teens sleep is different than pre-teenagers and adults. I think that's super important because I think it might be easy for a naysayer to say, ah, oh, you know, the teens, they just like to stay up later. You know, they're on their yes. social media. They are procrastinating with their homework and then they get it done later, mm -hmm. you know, just giving in to them. Like, why should they have to get to wake up later than everybody else? Yes. But this is a biological issue. Yes, it is. And you're absolutely right. And it's interesting. Um, I've done a number of call-in shows like for National Public Radio and so on. And invariably, somebody will call and say, well, this is just a bunch of molly coddling these lazy teenagers and so on. Mm -hmm. And then I might say to the caller, well, you know that the teens have no control over this when they feel sleepy. Mm -hmm. And invariably, somebody will go, oh, really? I didn't know that, right? Yeah. So this whole notion of educating and even educating the pediatricians. I have many friends now in the, in the medical field that look at the medical curriculum, and there's very little on sleep, but almost nothing specific to teenage sleep. Mm -hmm. So the, the pediatricians early on didn't, hadn't heard of this either if they weren't going to some of these meetings or reading some of the literature. So the whole notion of public education is really important for this. Yeah. And it sounds to me, like you mentioned that the American Pediatric Association has uh, supported these findings. They agree mm -hmm. with, you uh, think you said 8.30 a.m. is the ideal. Was that, yes. Did you just say 8.30 is the ideal start, that, that's start what time? They, that's what they concluded. It is the sweet spot because, and we can get into this because this has to do with other aspects of the teenage high school life. That is sports, yeah. extracurricular activities, and so on. And those are all really important. And if you start any really much later than nine o'clock, the law usually is that the student has to have be in school for six and a half hours a day. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the, again, you have to do the math and then you have to allow for lunch and passing time between classes and so on. And all of a sudden, if you are dismissing your high schools much past 4 p.m., it totally messes up sports and extracurriculars. So 8.30 is sort of the sweet spot. It would be better if it were 9 o'clock, but mm -hmm. there's a reality also that we have to address that is other activities also have to take place. So how have school districts managed that? Mm -hmm. There's the concern about after-school sports, extracurricular mm -hmm. activities, and yep. also just uh, transportation and scheduling with family and other kids. So tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about these challenges and what's been done. First off, to begin with, those are real challenges. You can't say that's not a challenge because they are. It's childcare after school, childcare. It's transportation schedules, sports schedules, students being let go in their sixth or last hour of class to be part of a traveling sports team or whatever. That's all real. And so mm -hmm. to address those problems is what a community can do to make this work. 
and every community is different. So there's not a one size in terms of how you do the transportation or the childcare, how that all works. But districts which have really spent the time to talk to their community members, some districts have put in after school childcare in each elementary building. Mm-hmm. Now they have to have some kind of accommodations made for classroom space and all that stuff to happen. Um, they might have a sliding fee scale that allows parents to afford this or not mm-hmm. um, in terms of transportation. Sometimes they've done mixed age busing now instead of just doing all mm-hmm. elementary kids at one time, all high school kids, they have mixed age busing. So you send the bus out into a neighborhood and you pick up all kids K-12 like they do in the rural districts every day. And that allows them, if they have a, what they call a hub and spoke, set up, then you have, you drop kids and then they get ferried off to their buildings at an adequate time. Mm-hmm. There are solutions out there, mm-hmm. but to, to stop the discussion by saying, well, this will never work because, you know, we're a championship team and we don't want to disrupt our winning ways and so on. That's not looking at the best interest of the kids. Mm-hmm. One other thing I want to say about the sports thing. So in Edina in 1996, those coaches in any Dina happens to always have a winning team, whether whatever sport they were mm-hmm. often state champion. The coaches were furious. They didn't like this idea at all. And when I interviewed them after the entire year of the first of the time change, they loved it because the kids remembered the plays better. Mm-hmm. Their memories were so much better. The kids weren't as dog tired in workouts after school. And the coaches found that they could actually shorten their practices maybe down to two hours instead of two and a half hours. Mm. So they shortened it so they didn't have the kids so late into the day for dinner hour. Mm -hmm. And they had the same high quality performance and the kids remembered more what to do when they were on the field. Wow, that's amazing. So Mm -hmm. the coaches really endorsed it, it sounds like. Mm -hmm. And it it seems to me like with a lot of things that you're talking about, you know, we talk about resistance to change. People oftentimes fear their ability to to change something, what the outcome is going to be, the consequence of that. And so I imagine there's a lot of fear about that, but actually the actual consequences, the results is very positive for those Mm -hmm. people who are afraid of the changes to begin with. Yes. The, the, the case with the coaches is a perfect example of that. Yes. And it's also, um, I think it's seen even as we have done interviews with parents pre and post and their pre-change, their worries are about kids staying up later mm-hmm. and they don't. They mm-hmm. do not stay up later because if this is a matter of biology, as the kids' brains have the melatonin secretion at 10, 45 or 11, they're just like, oh. I'm so sleepy. I have to go to bed. They tend to not stay up any later than maybe an extra 10, 15 minutes, but it's not statistically significant that they do stay up later. So that is an unfounded fear that they would mm-hmm. stay up later, right? Mm-hmm. Teens want to go to sleep when they're tired. Yes, of course they do. So that all of a sudden it's not an issue. It's very interesting when I think back. So when I did the study in 1996 in Edina and Minneapolis, we had no idea about either cell phones or the internet. Mm-hmm. Cell phones did not exist then, at least not for kids. There was no such thing as social media. Mm-hmm. And the kids, when they were sleepy, they went to bed and they went to sleep. The issue nowadays, which is the real world for us, which is meaning that there's social media and cell phone use and so on, the social media is a big hindrance for kids getting adequate sleep. Mm-hmm. It's a big, big hindrance that an 87% of all teenagers in the study that we did in the five states, 87% of the teens keep the cell phone in their bedroom. Yeah. 
Well, then you have, you know, texts and bings and dings and whatever in the middle of the night and the brain gets awakened. It has mm -hmm. a hard time falling back to sleep, totally disrupts their sleep pattern. Mm -hmm. And as a consequence, you have tired teens because they're engaged in social media in the middle of the night. So that's sort of a related but separate issue. One is going to sleep and waking up at the proper time. And another is uh, how does the media and the social media play into the whole sleep picture here? I would like to get into recommendations that you may have about this whole subject. And I'm imagining that there's some recommendations that also involve how that's handled, the social media part. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yes, yeah. good point. The whole notion that kids need, and I put that in quotes, mm -hmm. need to have their cell phone in their bedroom <laughs> is bunk. It's yeah. just, they don't need their cell phone in their bedroom. If they need it for an alarm, they can go to Walmart or Target, and for $3.99, they can get an alarm clock, mm -hmm. right? And also, I always say to parent groups, so who's paying the cell phone bill at your house? Is it your, your child? Right. And if the child's paying the bill, okay, then they can, you know, but if the child's not paying the cell phone bill, then the parent should have control over when that cell phone gets turned off mm -hmm. um, or the router to the house gets put to sleep. This has to be a family thing. It, I mean, yeah. the kids will see their parents, and they'll see the uh, hypocrisy of the parents you know, having their phones if they don't really need them for emergency reasons. And so the whole family, if they were to say, well, okay, we put all of our phones in the kitchen to charge mm -hmm. overnight, there you are. And There's actually, it's good for the parents to get a good night's sleep too, right? Yeah, you got it. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, you challenge parents to say, you know, who's in charge here? The parents, I really believe they have to start taking control and saying, I'm concerned about your health, your mm -hmm. mental health, your physical health, your grades, and this is one way to help. Mm -hmm. And you may not like this, but this is the way it's going to be at our house. And frankly, if parents would do that, then they wouldn't have somebody saying, well, so-and-so's mom lets them. My mother would say, but I'm not so-and-so's mom. I'm your mom. Well, <laughs> you have to follow my rules. <laughs> well, that's, that's absolutely right. And that yeah. <laughs> works on a school level too. Every other school may not be changing their start time, but that doesn't mean that you can't change your start time if that's exactly. the healthy that's thing to do. So that's yeah. never a good excuse, right? No, no. The other thing that, and I want to go back to your idea and your notion that change is hard. Mm -hmm. You know, human beings prefer the status quo. That's mm -hmm. just who we are as beings. And so I get it. I mean, the, to be cautious is normal. To be fearful, I don't know, you got to, if parents are, and school districts are wanting to think about this, the best way to, to allay their fears is to look at the research, mm -hmm. look at the findings. And now there are thousands of school districts in the country that have made this change. So it isn't so unusual that you're taking a big risk. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I only know, frankly, one school district in the entire United States who have shifted back to an early mm -hmm. start time. That was in the early 2000s. The district will remain unnamed, but they made the decision with too short of a time turnaround. So mm -hmm. they made the decision in June for a September time change. Mm -hmm. And it didn't allow the parents to make enough adjustments to their work schedule, childcare schedule, even the transportation. All of those things were, it was too fast. Mm -hmm. So after six weeks of this time change, the parents stormed the school board and they said, you've got to do this. We're voting you all out of office. Oh, six and weeks? Six weeks six was the weeks. turnaround? Oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the board caved because mm -hmm. it was in October and no November was the election period, right? So they had, they kind of had their thumb on the, on the school board. So they did make the change back to a 710 start 
which was unfortunate. But that's the only one that yeah. I know of in the country that went back to the 710, 715 start. Now, some districts have had to make some adjustments. So they started 825 instead of 830. Mm-hmm. Okay, you know, I get it. Those are some adjustments that are made for a variety of reasons. Transportation usually is one of them. But So would it be, Kyla, would it be fair to say, and I'm not going to hold you to concrete data on this, but let's say there were 500 attempts across the country to change start times. Mm-hmm. There was the one school district you said that, with the school that changed after six weeks didn't like it. Would the other 499 be satisfied that they made the right decision by making the change, even if they did some tweaking? Yes. Okay. That said, this is emerging as an issue that I think still, as researchers, we have to continue to look at this. There is concern or question right now about if these school districts flip their busing schedules so that the high school kids go later, which then if they have a two or three tiered busing system, it consequently moves the elementary kids probably to the earliest starting times in many cases. Does the early starting time negatively affect elementary kids? Mm -hmm. And that is an issue right now that is under study in lots of places across the country. What I can say is from what we know, Small children, before they're pubertal, do have a flexible sleep schedule. So they, in fact, can be put down to sleep at 7, 7.30. They can get up. They need about 11 hours of sleep. They can get up at 6.30. And if their school starts at, say, 7.30, quarter to 8 or even 8 o'clock, they are getting adequate sleep. It's often it disrupts the parents' schedules. Mm -hmm. They don't want to get up so early. And or you have parents, and I've had some parents directly tell me, well, we're both professional parents. And we don't get home until 7 or 7.30 on a work night. Now, of course, this is a different time right now, but they don't get home till 7, 7.30. We need some quality time with our kids up until 10 o'clock every night. It's kind of a bit of a misnomer. I was on a panel once with a pediatrician, and the pediatrician directly asked the parent who said that, really, do you think that your time between like 8.30 and 10 p.m. at night is quality time for your <laughs> child? <laughs> right. I mean, really. And yeah. so you, you have parents whose work schedules are granted are busy and they feel like they don't see their children. But you know, Aaron, life is a series of choices. Right. You make choices. You make choices about when you work, if you have the choice, or if you're working shift schedules. There are certain things that you have to think about. And, you know, uh, there's just a lot of things that have to do with choice and where you want to spend your time. Ryla, I, I agree completely with that. And The bottom line here is the data and the research is just so overwhelming that if one is going to make a choice, one would really want to consider how important the data is on these various measures that impact teens uh, Mm -hmm. with their sleep schedule. And their health. Of course, yeah. That's exactly it. If everybody who's looking at this as an issue puts it in the framework of what is best for my child's health, not for me as a parent, not for the school district and the bus schedule, not for after-school sports. It didn't affect participation rates. We found that there was no decrease in sports participation, no decrease in after-school employment on the part of the teenagers. Those were unfounded worries that did not ever materialize. So if you think about it, if every decision is made like, what's the best for my child's health, that is the way that we make the right decision. That's the lens that we need to be using. I agree. What's the best for my child's health? And the fears that I have about making these changes are usually 
unfounded. You right. just mentioned a bunch of them, the types of fears that people have, less or fewer participation in sports, uh, not getting enough sleep if the child goes to sleep later, uh, not participating in activities, not being able to get to after-school employment, transportation, snafus, uh, everything. Those things seem to be able to be managed and worked out. That's, yes. that's what you have found. That's it's amazing, right. amazing. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's just say there's a, a school or parents, people who are interested in really diving into the nitty gritty on how to make this work if they want to make the change. Mm-hmm. What are some resources for them to follow up with? The most comprehensive resource is the website called Start School Later. Mm-hmm. It's all strung together as one word, if you will. Start mm-hmm. School Later. Org, I think it is. Anyhow, um, it's a nonprofit. It's been in place for probably 10, 12 years. And they have many sub buttons that you click on for research information, resources, testimonials, how to in terms of get, bringing your community and your school board along to discuss it. So they have a wonderful array of materials that are resources available. If anybody were to Google, to school start time, you'll find a ton of articles that are out there. And I've written a couple of articles that are particularly written for lay persons that are more direct, directly addressing the issues of the logistics of doing this, getting this done. Yes, those, uh, I've read those. They're excellent articles. Thank you. They're really important. And you know, it's really interesting that the state of California last October, I guess it was, mm-hmm. mandated through state legislation that the entire state of California would have all secondary schools, that means middle school and high school, not to start before 8.30 as of school year 2022. That's incredible. It's incredible. It's incredible. And it'll be so interesting. Um, there's going to be a conference that is going to be held sometime this fall at Stanford for researchers so that we can together over the time now, because we've got some baseline data time to collect baseline data, and then also be looking at in the next, say, three years, statewide, we're going to be mm-hmm. able to look at incredible levels of fine-tuning this with race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, all these things with sports and transportation and whatnot. It's going to be an incredible database that we're going yeah. to be able to look at because yeah. of California's very bold move. Yeah. So they're going to be gathering a lot of data on this. Yes, right. Yeah. right. Are you involved yep. with that? I am, yeah. What's your role in that uh, research? <laughs> um, I basically, because I am one of the few people in this whole world of research that has a background in schools, in the real world mm-hmm, of schools. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of researchers who are sleep researchers and circadian rhythm researchers and whatever, whatever. But collecting data in schools, boy, it's a tough road. Mm-hmm. Because every school has their own way they keep test scores. Every school, honestly, has probably a different way to keep attendance and tardiness. Mm-hmm. Some schools keep, you have to have five tardies before you get a single notice of tardiness. Mm-hmm. Whereas other schools, every time you're tardy, it's noted as a tardy. So you have to have equal measures to be assessing these changes. And so that's my expertise is I know schools and I know where the pitfalls are when you don't get good data. It's the garbage in, garbage out phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And if you don't get good data in, we're not going to have good data to, to, to tell the story. 
Right. So your early background was in education and you sort of know what it's like to be yeah. there on the front lines and being yeah. asked to gather data. And you're like, oh my gosh, gathering data. I've got kids I need to deal with. So yeah. you be able to get in there and, and, and really work with them and being empathetic and understanding and still get the data you need. To, That's right. Yeah. Well, and also I think some districts, unfortunately, only use a state test. Mm -hmm. It's the only measure of improvement. Well, the state tests happen on discrete one or two days a year and the kid may have be ill or maybe having had a fight with their parent that morning or I, there's a thousand reasons why kids on a given day right. don't do well right. and so to use those data um, as the only measure is also short-sighted in my mm -hmm. view so i think that's why we have this conference coming up at stanford and it's going to be about how to collect data that is comparable number one quality number two and usable. I mean, this could be data we collect that is not usable. Why would we collect it? Because it's unethical to collect data unless you're going to use it. Mm -hmm. So that's part of the ethics of this whole thing, too. That's really exciting. And I can't wait to hear how that all goes in the coming years. And this this is going to be implemented in California, you said 2022? Yes, as of the fall of 2022. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah. Kyla, any final thoughts or insights or advice that we haven't covered today that you think would be critical for us to know about on the subject? Well, you know, I just want to reiterate, I think the fact that, like I said before, we have to always keep the needs of the children forefront. They're our future. And if we have kids that are risking their health, even as teenage, teenagers and moving into adulthood with poor choices, it's affecting us, it will in, in generations to come. So this is something that is no small thing. It is not about teenagers being the word obstreperous. It's they're not mm -hmm. being obstreperous. They're not being difficult. They're being teenagers who have a biological drive to not fall asleep until 11 and not wake up until eight. And if you people just understand that, I think we make good decisions based on that knowledge. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And most importantly, the research findings completely support that. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it's a slam dunk. Yeah, yeah, it is. Kyla, thank you so much for coming on and being on the show today. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Aaron, it's always a pleasure to talk with this very important topic in mind, and I appreciate your contact me to, to have this uh, discussion. Thank you for listening to Mind Tricks Radio. I hope you have enjoyed the program. For more information about Mind Tricks, please go to my website, www.waikikihealth.com. Please be sure to subscribe to Mind Tricks podcast and accompanying blog to be notified of new episodes of Mind Tricks. Please be sure to follow Mind Tricks on Facebook by following and liking posts by myself, your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan. Music